0: Hi all, and welcome to another impromptu episode from the Patreon Bonus Archives. This release actually serves a couple of purposes. The first is to tell you all not to delete outlines from your feeds. I am still busy working on the new series, it's just taking much longer than I'd anticipated. Which brings me on to the second purpose another shameless plug of Patreon and the bonus content you can find if you sign up there. It's around a fiver and you get a new exclusive episode monthly, plus the knowledge that you're helping me fund everything I need for the show. And now that I'm heading further and further away from my home to research episodes, those costs are pretty expensive. So, if you go to www.patreon.com forward slash the outlines podcast, you can sign up for a month or longer, depending on what you like. There's no contract in place to say you have to keep supporting once you've listened to all the bonus content if you don't want to. And it does really, really help me out. On a side note, if you want to support the show, but Patreon isn't your thing, you can PayPal me directly at... The Outlines podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for waiting and supporting however you can, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This episode of Outlines contains discussion of a missing child, and mentions of abuse which some listeners may find distressing. So as always, discretion is advised. Today's episode begins again in the seaside town of Great Yarmouth and with me and my partner driving down the seafront, heading the long way around to where we need to be. We are visiting on a bright, cool March day, the kind where the wind lowers the temperature a good few degrees, but the sky is clear and blue, and as we drive down the parade I try desperately to take photos out of the window and curse the fact that I didn't bring a proper camera with me. We keep the long stretch of Pleasure Beach on our right, as to our left we pass a flamingo-pink quasar building. The tagline reads, Serious fun with a laser gun. There's an amusement arcade, all in blue, called Silver Slipper. Another with a large sign, apparently meant to be reminiscent of the American Wild West, called Golden Nugget. There are cafes, chip shops, B&Bs, the beautiful iron and glass winter gardens a remnant from the victorian era which now sits rusting and awaiting refurbishment just past britannia pier is a lovely old building which now houses a cinema and at the back of that fallen angels advertised as a premiere lap dancing club This is Great Yarmouth, where theme park rides, neon lights and childhood holidays live side by side with the dead splendour of the winter gardens and the grubby hands of the strip clubs. And just off of this, no more than a five-minute walk from the Yellow Sands, the great stretches of North Sea and the rides of the Pleasure Beach, is Copperfield Avenue, a terraced street, most of which is social housing, and none of which has changed much since Saturday the 3rd of May 2003, the date on which this case begins. As we drive the area, we head first one way up Barkis Road to a small newsagent's, now a Morrison's and formerly Blencoe's, a one-minute walk from Copperfield Avenue, and from there we swing around and head in the other direction, towards Southgates Road and the banks of the River Yare. As we wait to pull out of Barkis Road, two things catch my attention. The first is that on the opposite side of the road above a bus shelter and covered in clear perspex is some graffiti, which is very obviously by the artist Banksy. It's of two people dancing, apparently on top of the bus stop, while a third person sits with their feet appearing to hang over the edge, playing an accordion. Usually, the Banksy would have my full attention, if it wasn't for the fact that to the left of it and towering over nearby buildings stands a gas holder it's victorian a grade two listed structure and i've never seen one like it before it has a large round frame made of cast iron and steel painted white but now streaked with rust all over the ornate columns as we pull out of the junction and head in the direction of south gates road I tell my partner that it's the most lovely thing I've ever seen, and I'm barely exaggerating as I say this. It's a beautiful design for something so functional, and there's a strange poignancy to the fact that the events of today's episode took place in its shadow. Eventually, after avoiding a few roadworks, we reach our final destination, a little side road called Trinity Square, On the corner of which is a BP garage, formerly a Texaco, and all around, industrial buildings, a former lighthouse operations depot, warehouses, and, blocked by a high blue metal fence, the concrete banks of the fast-flowing River Yare, which winds through the heart of town in one direction, and at this end leads out to the edge of the Yarmouth Sands and straight into the North Sea. The Yare is a river where the tide can be going in one direction and the undercurrent can pull you in another. It's wide, grey, imposing, flanked by the metal of industrial buildings, and it's here, long before the high blue fence appeared, that in the early hours of Sunday, the 4th of May 2003, a small red BMX bike, belonging to seven year old Daniel Entwistle, was discovered laying on its side on the concrete banks of the river, though Daniel, who disappeared at around 5pm the previous day, has never been seen again. I'm Jess Carter, and this is a Patreon-exclusive episode of The Outlines podcast. Back in 2003, according to locals, it wasn't uncommon to see children playing out around Yarmouth in the area where Daniel lived. It was described at the time by Daniel's head teacher, Keith Eggleton, as being a close-knit community, one where people knew each other, even if it was just by sight. And seven-year-old Daniel, riding his red bicycle, was a fixture of the streets, ...sometimes alone and sometimes with other children. The managing director of Yarmouth Pleasure Beach... ...said that he was well known by the staff and a regular visitor down there. On the Norfolk Police website... ...Daniel is described at the time of his disappearance... ...as being three foot two inches tall... ...thin with light brown hair, cropped short. He was pale and his voice bore a strong northern accent... The family were originally from Burnley and had moved to Yarmouth a few years previously. The day he went missing, he was wearing a blue Adidas t-shirt with striped sleeves and an Adidas motif on the chest. He had on a blue tracksuit bottoms and grey coloured training shoes. That Saturday the 3rd of May was a bank holiday and the town was bustling with day and weekend trippers. On the Saturday morning, Daniel, who had two brothers, ten-year-old Anthony and two-year-old John, had been given a Beyblade spinning-top-style toy by his parents, Paula and David, and he and Anthony were reportedly playing with it. A woman, known only as Margaret, who lived on the same road as Daniel's family, Copperfield Avenue, told the papers, "'He was in my garden early in the afternoon,' He was seen twice near the quayside at Trinity Square, first at around midday and then later at 3.30pm. This was the area near where his bike was found, and the sighting was made by a retired merchant seaman called Joe Zuger. Joe, who was Polish, was reportedly a former Spitfire pilot who had served in the Battle of Britain, and in 2003 was a part-time night watchman and neighbourhood watch coordinator. He told the papers that he saw Daniel with a group of about ten older boys and said, I knew the little boy. You would see him around a lot. He was often with older boys. I saw the boys larking about by the river, and all of them were throwing stones into the water. The other boys were sitting or lying on the wall, but Daniel wasn't. He was some distance away, as if he did not want to get too close. Joe went on to say, The lads often hang around down there so they can go crab fishing, but when their crab lines get caught, I have seen some of the older ones either climbing over a fence to get down to a ladder or clamber onto a wooden ledge along the wall so they can pull it back up. According to Joe, all of the boys were gone by about 4pm, and he did not see them again that day. This 3:30 sighting is mentioned on the Norfolk Police website, so we can be pretty sure that it is correct. After the discovery of Daniel's bike, the EDP spoke to Carla Tibble, one of the Texaco employees, who said, "I've been out there many times to tell the kids not to play out there." Following on from this, Daniel at some point returned home, where his father David asked him to go to the shop on Barkis Road to get milk for a baby's bottle, while his mother Paula, who reportedly suffered from epilepsy, was asleep. David says he gave him a little extra cash with which to buy sweets, and Daniel is seen on CCTV at 5.01pm in the Barkis Road newsagents, now Morrison's. There are several photographs which have been released from this CCTV footage, and they show Daniel, dressed in his Adidas top, walking down the aisles of the store. He has a purposeful look to his stride, a swing in his arms which belies the fact that he comes nowhere close to being as tall as the shelves on either side of him. According to David Entwistle, Daniel returned home with the milk and then told his dad that he was going out again to play on his bike. Neighbours appear to have corroborated this story, although it was after this that seven-year-old Daniel disappeared. There is one more CCTV image, which may or may not be Daniel. It is of a small boy riding his bike past the Texaco garage, now BP, which sits on the corner of Trinity Square. In the image, which seems to have never been publicly released... A small boy is seen at about 5.20pm cycling past the petrol station. Detective Superintendent Julian Gregory, the man who led the investigation into Daniel's disappearance, said There is a young boy on a bicycle who might be Daniel. It is difficult to identify on the quality of the video. As footage of this has never been released and it doesn't seem to be mentioned concretely in any recent reports on the case, It appears as if, despite police's best efforts to enhance the quality of the video, it has never been proved that this was or wasn't Daniel. In the days following his son's disappearance, Daniel's father David claimed that he did not sleep for more than 36 hours, and in that time, he and other family members walked almost continuously around Yarmouth. By Monday the 5th of May, two days after Daniel disappeared, 60 uniform uniformed officers from all around the Norfolk area were drafted in to help with the search margaret the neighbour who had spied him playing on copperfield avenue on the saturday said the night he went missing everyone on the streets was out looking it was marvelous everyone came out of their houses they didn't hesitate despite the reportedly large number of searchers the only trace that could be found of daniel was his red bike Remembering that moment in an interview from Monday the 12th of May, David Entwistle said that he jumped on the river wall and shouted hysterically, he's in the river, as it was the first thing that came to his mind. He said, I had to go home and tell Paula what they had found. It was the worst thing I have ever had to do. We just broke down together. Following the discovery of the bike, police divers began to search the River Yare in the area around the quayside at Trinity Square. Later, high-tech sonar equipment would be used to scour the riverbed in an operation which continued for almost four weeks before the divers were taken off of daily scans. This search of the inland waterways and the sea was reportedly one of the largest ever carried out in Norfolk, and Mario Ciano, the Coast Guard watch manager, said, We have searched harder in this situation than we have ever searched before. Despite the time and effort that was put into this particular part of the search for Daniel, it wasn't the only avenue that police were exploring. The investigation seemed to have centred on four main hypotheses, all of which were assigned similar amounts of time and resources. The first was the idea that he had been playing on the river wall, and had somehow fallen in or that one event or another had led to him going into the water the second was that he had been taken by someone unknown and his bike discarded in the spot on trinity square the third was that he had injured himself while playing in the area and was unable to summon help and the fourth was that he could have perhaps run away of his own accord Despite the fact that it is a rare thing for children as young as Daniel to run away from home, he was known to suffer from ADHD, for which he was not on medication, and Detective Superintendent Julian Gregory was quick to point out that this could make him impulsive or impervious to risk. The Eastern Daily Press reported that Daniel may have had a different outlook on dangerous situations and that he might have felt less fear than other children his age. As the bank holiday ended, and kids at Daniels Primary School, Greenacre First, Middle and Nursery, returned after the long weekend, the children were, according to headteacher Keith Eggleton, a bit more subdued than normal and a bit more thoughtful. But they were coping well in the circumstances, and they knew that while they were there, they were in a safe environment. The school made plans to hold a special assembly with Daniel's parents, Paula and David, in attendance. Keith Eggleton told the newspapers that Daniel is a little boy of whom we are enormously fond because he is friendly and constantly speaking to staff and is very engaging. In another interview, he stated, I am concerned for my staff, especially the teaching assistants who are members of the community and one of them babysits for Daniel. They know him well, and it has hit them hard. He went on to say that the purpose of the assembly would be to deal with what we have to at the time, and if there is no news, we will try to reassure the children. The newspapers spoke to several teachers at Daniel's school, and the teacher of Daniel's class, 34FW, Martin Fuller, called Daniel a strong-willed kid and said, He loves drawing and making models and working on the computer, and he loved talking to the class, telling them the things he had found out and showing them the things he had brought to school. He took a great interest in the world, and he would have a good understanding of the news. He would ask questions in science, and he would be the one who was asking questions and would explore and want to find out more. He was very inquiring. From everything I've read about Daniel... He sounds like a really interested, enthusiastic kid. His mum called him mischievous and said that he was always getting into trouble, but was a happy and kind boy. He reportedly loved cartoons and animals and his dad said, Daniel absolutely loves watching The Simpsons and every time it comes on, it is so hard to watch because he always watches it at home. He loved animals. We had two cats who died recently, but Daniel really looked after them. He wouldn't go to school without making sure they were fed, and if anyone upset them, that was it. He was also the hamster monitor at school, which he was really proud of and which he loved doing. At the time of his disappearance, the family were only two weeks away from going on a trip to Menorca, which would have been Daniel's first time on an aeroplane. The tickets actually arrived the day he vanished, and David remembered him looking up at the sky and saying, I'll be up there soon. On Wednesday the 7th of May, the fourth day of Daniel's disappearance, the EDP reported that after the special assembly, in which local Reverend Irene Knowles led a prayer session, Daniel's classmates were encouraged to draw pictures and write messages asking him to return home to his family. A candle was lit as a message of hope. One message read, Dear Daniel, please come home. We miss you from Sophie. We lit a candle for you. Another, Dear Daniel, come back home. I hope you're safe. Come back to your mum and dad. Your family are missing you too, Daniel. We want you to come back to this school safe. I hope you're okay. We need you, Daniel. From Keeley. David Entwistle told reporters that he and Paula were working in close liaison with parents and had received their permission to pass on any information the children might give them to the police. There was a feeling that perhaps some of the kids could know more about what happened to Daniel than they were saying, and police. Teachers and the Entwistles seemed keen to reiterate that they wouldn't be in trouble if they came forward with information. As well as Greenacre First Middle and Nursery, Daniel was also attending a pupil referral unit at Galston part time, and searches were carried out there as well. I can't find out exactly what Daniel had been attending the referral unit for but it seems as if it might have been behavioural issues associated with his ADHD. Sadly, it did also emerge that despite the outpouring of support from his classmates, Daniel was regularly bullied by other children, though police did not believe that this had been the cause of his disappearance. Despite the fact that nowadays there is very little in the press or coming from the police in relation to Daniel's case, Back in 2003, there were many different facets to the investigation. As well as divers and the RNLI scouring the riverbed and sea, members of the fire service conducted searches of garage and warehouse rooftops in the area around where Daniel's bike was found, and people were encouraged to look carefully in outbuildings and businesses in case he was injured or trapped somewhere. Police sifted through the bank holiday rubbish from the pleasure beaches, And swept the seafront, beaches and the area around Britannia Pier, while volunteers delivered leaflets around the area and provided hot food and drink to the search teams. Daniel's disappearance appears to have motivated the majority of the community into action. More sinisterly though, police were also reported to have been investigating the movements of known sex offenders in the area and cross-checking number plates captured on CCTV in the vicinity. On Thursday the 8th of May, a press conference was held in which Daniel's father David, his step-grandfather Keith Dutton and aunt Barbara Connolly took part. Barbara told the journalists and gathered news crews that it was the not-knowing that they couldn't stand. We just want to know one way or the other and bring this to an end for Paula and David's sake. A tearful David explained Paula's absence, saying that she had been finding it extremely difficult to cope with everything that had happened. He said, I have just got to be strong for Paula, because she's not well at the moment, and she's going through hell. I have got to be strong for her. It's unbelievable what's going on. It's heart-wrenching, because nobody knows what is happening. He went on to say that he hoped Daniel had been abducted, because that would give them hope and might mean he was still alive. Barbara Donnelly said, All mothers will understand what she is going through. Paula is not handling it very well at all. She keeps breaking down in tears, which is only natural. Keith Dutton said, I honestly believe that he is with someone who is looking after him. My message to the adults is, If you were doing anything like this, it could quite possibly be through a tragedy you have suffered yourself. We know what you were going through. By Christ, we know what you were going through. He went on to say that he would show no animosity to the person if Daniel was returned to the family. He also appealed to tourists who were visiting the area over the bank holiday to look back through their photos and videos of the weekend and see if there were any sightings of Daniel among them. I always find this idea a fascinating one, that maybe somewhere someone has something in a family album, or saved on a computer, that could help police with their investigations. There might still be something there, in the background of an image, a child on a red bicycle they've never paid attention to before. There were many photographs released of Daniel at this time, a video camera still of him at his parents' wedding the previous November a shot of him alone, the CCTV footage, plenty that people could have or still could refer back to and reference against their own photographs. The river was used by day-trippers and tourists, and it's not inconceivable that someone could have captured something and just never realised the significance. On the same day as the press conference the drawings and messages produced by Daniel's classmates were placed on the altar at St. James's Church in Admiralty Road, the road on which the Banksy and the beautiful gas holder can be found. One of the pupils at Daniel's school, 10-year-old Rachel, lit 15 small candles on the church altar. Rachel and Daniel had reportedly become close because she was his buddy at school during lunchtimes keeping an eye out for him on the playground and escorting him to clubs. Rachel said, We are very sad he is missing. Come home. Please come home. We're all worried about you. As the days turned into weeks and nothing new came to light, police were anxious to stress that they were still working hard on the case. They released posters with photographs of over 90 people who had used the Texaco petrol station around the time of Daniel's disappearance, and they continued scouring the industrial areas near where his bike was found. They also searched abandoned houses, along nearby roads, looking under stairs, behind wall panels and in roof spaces. This certainly feels like one of those cases that can be summed up with the phrase no stone left unturned. And yet, still there was no sign of Daniel, not in the water, not on land, and nothing to suggest that he had been abducted or ran away. In the absence of anything new to report, national newspapers published stories defaming the Entwistle family, claiming that Daniel often appeared in school with bruises and had suffered several beatings, and that those had been brought to the attention of social services. These claims were vigorously denied by Paula and David Entwistle. By early June, more than a month after Daniel's disappearance, the search teams were stood down, with Detective Superintendent Julian Gregory telling the papers that police were no further forward in terms of whether he was a victim of a crime, or if he went in the river, or both. At this point, the investigation had involved more than a hundred officers, and cost over £300,000, a large amount, but a small price to pay when looking for a missing child. It is around this time that papers began to report on unrest among the Entwistles. David and Paula split up acrimoniously, and David, who was unable to cope with this, had an injunction served upon him which banned him from seeing Paula, or going to her house on Copperfield Avenue. At the time of the split, David, who was taking compassionate leave from his job as a railway maintenance worker, blamed the pressure of not knowing what happened to Daniel for causing rows between the two. They had been together for ten years, but he implied that the pressure had been too much for the two of them. Just a few days after the injunction was imposed, he broke the order for the first time, turning up drunk at the house a pattern which would be repeated a further two times in quick succession, when he would appear, drunk in the early hours, banging on doors and windows. After the second time, the district recorder showed sympathy towards David, saying, I have enormous sympathy for the situation Mr Entwistle finds himself in, in relation to his missing child, and his relationship with her and the distress estrangement is causing him later adding, You've got to learn to keep away from Paula Taylor, and it's not just because the court has ordered it. The future is going to be much more difficult if you don't. A couple of weeks later, the court injunction was breached again. Despite David's insistence at the time that the marital problems were to be blamed on stress caused by Daniel's disappearance... We now know that there was also another reason for the couple's split. Reported in the Mirror in 2015 following the death of David Entwistle, who had struggled with alcohol addiction, was the revelation that David possessed a previous conviction of six months for having had sex with a girl under the age of 13. Police at the time of Daniel's disappearance were aware of David's past and had, over the course of the investigation... ...informed Paula of this, who, despite having been with David for ten years, was unaware of his history. The charge dated back to 1986, when David and three other men were accused of having unlawful sexual intercourse with a twelve-year-old girl. I can't find any more detail about the charge, or why the sentence was so short... Six months for the rape of a child seems to be a gross underestimation of the seriousness of the crime. This is all the information I can find on Daniel's case. There is plenty from 2003, but very little recent work seems to have been done. It appears now that, despite there being no concrete evidence, police believe that Daniel probably fell in the water that Saturday, and drowned. This may be why he is so often overlooked in conversations on missing children, but they do not know with any certainty what happened that day. None of the main scenarios have ever been ruled out. No one knows still whether he went in the river by accident, or was taken by someone, or if he went in the river at the hands of someone else. There are plenty of instances of children being killed by other children, either on purpose or by accident. Only the other day, the killer of six-year-old Ricky Neve, who was murdered in 1994, was revealed to have been a boy who was 13 at the time. Daniel was not necessarily treated well at school. He was bullied, and perhaps this went too far that day. It happens. It happens children don't always have a good understanding of the consequences of their actions and it's no less conceivable than any of the other scenarios. In the course of my research, I found many snippets of news footage but one in particular stuck with me. In the clip, you see divers jumping from the industrial concrete edge down into the dark grey of the river Yare. Over the top, The reporter narrates Fading light matters not Below the surface there is no light, only black There have been no more leads in Daniel's case Barely any new coverage And what happened to him In the words of Detective Superintendent Julian Gregory We just do not know This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed, and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.